0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. I'm Paul rees Hello,
1: everybody. Erica Klein here. And
0: Jennifer Waits. So today, uh, we're going to dive into a little bit about net neutrality, an open internet, right? It's, it's a topic that's come up quite a few times but, on Radio Survivor in the last couple of years.
1: But Paul, I thought that the Trump administration under Ajit Pai's FCC had ended network neutrality for good. And
0: you would almost sort of be correct. We lost. Except now the fight has moved to states and to local municipalities and to cities, where uh, some states like Oregon and Washington have passed some laws that establish some of those principles, open internet principles, as state law. And now it's actually moved to another state, a really big state, California. And so we're going to learn more about what's going on there uh, because. California is on the cusp of perhaps putting into place the strongest open internet protections in the United States. And I'm also
1: excited because we're going to be talking about a related story where the firefighters fighting the wildfires in California were, were throttled. Did their internet access get cut off by their network service provider because we don't have an open internet? Well, that's, that question is not resolved. But it still
0: makes for a really fun story. Yeah. So we're going to talk with Catherine Trendacosta. She is a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We recently spoke to her about uh, the public domain and music and copyright, but she's also an expert on net neutrality, and so she was more than happy to uh, let us know about what is happening now in California.
1: Yeah, a moving news story, but we'll we'll make sure that we get you the the, the freshest information possible here on Radio Survivor uh, coming up after the interview.
0: So as we know the federal protection of a principle known as network neutrality ended this year when the FCC under chairman Ajit Pai uh chose to tear asunder the protections put in place by his predecessor at the FCC. However, it doesn't mean that the fight has ended. Um and in fact, as we noted on Radio Survivor not long ago, it moved often to state houses and to local municipalities. And and one state that's been very prominent in the fight to preserve an open internet is California. Katherine Trendacosta, you're from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and you can tell us more about what is happening in California around net neutrality.
2: Yes. So California's journey to net neutrality has has been dramatic. And long, and I've aged 100 years in two months. Um, so, but it is a, ultimately, if it passes, it'll be even more amazing. But even, even if we stall, there have been parts of this that have been really sort of inspiring because we're in California, a very large state, lots of people. Net neutrality is obviously up against a lot of money from ISPs. ISPs are pouring money into Sacramento and pouring calls into Sacramento. And, and they're
0: pouring money into stopping something from happening?
2: Yes, they are They are pouring money into California generally, right. because we don't actually know, we know the amount of money, but we don't, there's no specific, it's not marked against this bill. But there's been a, a clear increase.
1: And you're saying and, internet service provider, corporations like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast.
2: Right. Um, and so in California, the bill... The initial bill is called SB 822 by uh, state Senator Scott Wiener. It um, is sort of a it takes everything that was in the old FCC open Internet order uh, and rules and sort of applies it on a state level Mm -hmm. in a way that is is well within the uh, authority of the state to do. And it passed the California Senate relatively unscathed, which was very exciting and then hit a pretty significant roadblock this was a couple months ago in the assembly it went to it had a committee hearing and before the hearing started with the cameras off, a vote was had by the committee hmm. that gutted the bill. it removed all basically everything. And it became a net neutrality in name only. Senator Weiner, who had written the bill, had said that if it looks stays this way, I can't support my own bill anymore. And what happened um, is sort of a testament to the internet, which is the outcry from Californians, regular Californians, it was so strong and so big the uh, organization fight for the future was able to crowdfund in a very short order money to put a billboard in the district of the chairman of that committee wow to call him out he eventually backed down so they didn't actually have to put it up but they still have they they can still always do that if someone they, they, they got the bill. money to put the billboard up but they
1: didn't have to spend it Yep, that's the best. It, because
2: right he, the the reaction was so strong that um, Chairman Miguel Santiago is now uh, the sort of one of the co-sponsors of this bill, and is and is and they put basically all of these strong protections back in. Um, it also semi merged. That bill with another net neutrality bill called um, SB 460, Mm -hmm. which has a few more steps to go than than A22. A22 is sort of the general net neutrality bill, and 460 is the California can't spend any money on non-net neutral services. And so this week, that bill finally made it, the the bill with everything back in, went to the committee again, it made it through that committee without amendments, and so it's still a strong bill. And it's going to be voted on in the assembly. And if it passes there, it still as a net neutrality bill, it has to get voted on in the Senate again because it's different because of all of the, that stuff. But um, I am I am so heartened by the fact that that citizens speaking up and and people saying like this is not what I want worked. Like yeah, the ISPs have a lot of money to spend and. Uh, The voices of actual humans really did make the change here. Now, in addition to the committee hearing that happened this week, another pretty big story in California dropped that put the ISP sort of on the back foot, and that is the revelation that the Internet service of of fire departments was throttled by Verizon while they were fighting the Mendocino fire complex, one of the largest fires right. in California. So,
1: so uh, you know, internet internet um, neutrality can sometimes have trouble getting to the front page, but when you when you peg it to one of the largest fires in California, um, people might start paying attention. Before we talk about that story, because that yes. story is fascinating, Catherine Trentacosta, policy analyst at EFF, we just want to underline that because the Federal Communications Commission under Donald Trump, under the Republican uh, control Throughout what we had of net neutrality, the fight has shifted to states. And right. a big battleground then is the state of California. What could happen to net neutrality for other people? I don't live in California. Lots of people don't live in California. Why, why should we care if California has a free and open internet when the rest of us don't?
2: So um, there are a couple of things. Washington, Vermont... And Oregon have all passed net neutrality bills um, of ver- of various strengths. California's is is by far the most comprehensive, and and California being such a large market, the ISPs are fighting it. We're fighting it really hard. Right. And if it can pass in California, it's a model bill that other states can look to. The fight that we had here, um, I say this because EFF is is located in San Francisco, so it is it is my home state currently. Um, People, people trying to get these bills passed in other states can see what happened here and, and sort of try to replicate that action and, and momentum and know that it works. That's the other part. It's it's to know that it works. Yeah. And so all of those things are, are incredibly useful in furthering net neutrality in, in all of their states.
0: Is it fair to say that if you are a large national ISP internet service provider, having different policies in California than you do in Nevada? Actually, starts to get too expensive, <laughs> like because in part because of the size of California and its economic power. Trying to set up all these different regimes around the country kind of forces companies to comply with California, even outside of California.
2: That that would be a hope. It's I just never want to underestimate the greed of large corporations. Sure. I and, just can't. And they really it's, do have a lock and, city and like, by city. And they have a lot city by city, so they don't have any incentive there's no there's no competitor who's gonna be like, I'm gonna be net neutral everywhere. And right. and, and and I'm gonna have a low price. Like they don't there's no check other than these laws.
0: I was thinking just um, as a and, parallel, you know, the clean air rules for automobiles got their start in the, California.
1: Okay. So it's it's a step in the right direction if you're if you're in favor of the of network neutrality for, for the state of California to pass strong network neutrality, but a strong network neutrality legislation on a national level would be a freer and more open internet. Catherine Chendacosta, what did the internet service providers do to firefighters in California?
2: So when I said... Never as underestimate the greed of ISPs. This is and large corporations. This is sort of a prime example of of that. I, I am legitimately shocked that that this that no one at Verizon stopped this. Right.
1: We should say that um, for listeners outside of the west coast of of North America, um, there are so many fires every everybody yes. up and down the coast are being impacted, especially the air quality in the cities up and down the coast Seattle, Portland, Northern California. Um, I know in British Columbia the air is is uh, is smoky everywhere and the fires am, are burning am- everywhere.
2: I am looking at a mask on my desk right now that yeah. uh, my office was giving out to us so because a, it's ex- the air quality is so low. It's impacting every
1: single person in, in, up and down the coast. So, right. and And, the, and it's the front page news for a lot of these communities where the fires are burning and how bad they are and who's fighting them. And yet Verizon right. throttled the firefighters.
2: Verizon and the ISPs have been very clear that they don't think this has anything to do with net neutrality. The firefighters involved... Disagree um, The way that this came to light is that they filed They sort of wrote they sort of described what happened to them in support of the people Suing the FCC for repealing the old laws and they've also come out in support of Sba 22 in California Because of their experience so so, in- so
1: firefighters fighting the wildfires in California um, had their internet access. Yeah.
0: yeah. Can you describe what so, happened? What yeah. was the so, actual effect?
2: Yes. So I don't know if you've ever looked at a wireless or internet plan. The wording is very weird. And so they had a plan that they thought was unlimited data.
1: On and their smartphones.
2: They, so they have um, basically what is a mobile command center. Yeah, it's a, a mobile
1: office. A fire department in Santa Clara, Santa Clara, Fire yes, in Santa Clara has a data plan. Yeah.
2: <laughs> has a data plan, and they have this mobile like command unit, basically. And for reason, this is the part that was wild to me. Um, it it runs on a SIM card for its wireless internet. And so they got a Verizon SIM card and put it in their command center and bought a plan for it, uh, a plan that they thought was unlimited data. It was actually a plan and these are not technically illegal under the old rules or these rules that was like unlimited and up to a certain amount of data. And then once you reach that data cap, you get throttled. And so what happened was the fires are so big and they've been fighting them for so long, they hit that data cap, which they like in a way that they hadn't really experienced before. And the internet connection to this command unit was slowed to basically dial up speeds. Wow
1: and we're talking about their ability to download maps
0: to use or perhaps even do voice over over right, the internet to communicate to with communicate. one another in the field. Jeez.
1: to communicate
2: with each other to collect real time information about the state of the fire. So the firefighters basically found their command center their command center throttled down to dial up speeds. So that's insane. Like nothing should be at dial up in yeah. 2018.
3: Especially public, uh, and so they
2: public service. right and there's a series of emails you can read where the fire department emails Verizon and says what's happening. The Verizon rep emails back and says you hit your cap, you have to get a more another plan. And they've been paying. I want to say it was like thirty seven ninety nine, and then they're like you have to pay the thirty nine ninety nine per month plan. And then they got back to them later and said actually what you need is the ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cent plan. Like they just. And the the meanwhile, they're the the firefighters are using their own phones and like buying other phones and trying to like to in order to run this this fight that yeah. they're doing. Wildfires the fire. raging. <laughs> yes, while this fire is raging, they are arguing with Verizon about how fast their data should be and what it should be. Um, Verizon says that they're very sorry and that this shouldn't have happened and that this has nothing to do with net neutrality because. It just doesn't. Um, And there are a couple of reasons that that's not true. One is technically they are correct in the sense that this kind of plan they had, because of the way it was structured, might not, might not have been illegal under the old rules. However, the old rules did prevent them, did prevent a certain kind of actions, certain deceptive and unreasonable and sort of, you can't act in in a way where the state's burning and you're asking for more money.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the old rules might have prevented it under that, not specifically the throttling. I also think it's really important because they say it has nothing to do with net neutrality. However, the ISP said approximately one billion times in the fight to get rid of the net neutrality protections, the reason they don't like net neutral, one of the reasons that net neutrality is bad is because if it bans prioritization, then they can't treat emergency services or services like telemedicine differently from anyone else.
1: Right. Yeah. The, the idea that why and a network shouldn't be neutral because some things are more important than other things, especially fighting wildfires.
2: Right. And they said that constantly. They bring up telemedicine all the time. And what this proves is that it has nothing. Like they, in a way, they are right. It wasn't net neutrality. It was their policy. It was we sold this plan. You have to abide by this plan, even if there is no burden on the th- on our network, and we have the bandwidth for you. You haven't paid for it. Yeah. And so it it puts a it put like it it shows that as the lie it was, especially because the old rules. And any law that you sort of see with net neutrality uh, allows what's called reasonable network management, which is the obvious idea that in an emergency, you can readjust your bandwidth. If they wanted to throttle other customers so that they could give better speed to these firefighters, under net neutrality rules, that is okay. Because it has to do, it is not about making money, it is about efficiency and public safety and all these other concerns. And so it's just, um, it is a story that clearly lays out why it really is important to find out, to figure out how you're getting your internet, how those people, and how those companies use that internet. And in this situation, Verizon, beyond the sheer, like, awfulness of what occurred, this also happened after the rules were repealed, (laughs) So we know it wasn't net neutrality that was involved. Like we know that it wasn't the rules about net neutrality that impacted Verizon's actions. Verizon acted just in, in accordance with its own rules. Yeah.
1: Well, Catherine Trendacosta, policy analyst at EFF, thank you for catching us up on the latest regarding network neutrality in the in the great state of California.
2: Thank you so much for
1: having me. We want to thank uh, Catherine Costa of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and we want to let listeners know that that interview was recorded on August 24th of 2018, and news is actually moving fast now on network neutrality in the state of California. Yes, yeah,
0: so on August 29th, the California Assembly passed its bill, state Bill 822, its own net neutrality bill. And it's a little bit different, we understand, than the one that was passed in the Senate, which is the one that Catherine Trendacostas told us about. So right now, the California Senate, as we are recording here on August 31st, has to conform its bill. So they're basically, right now, they're going through to kind of work out the small differences between the Senate and the House versions. And once they do that, it can go on to uh, the governor for signing. It probably won't be signed before this episode is released on September 4th of 2018, but it's likely that the California Senate will be able to conform things. It looks like even if network neutrality is not the law of the land in the United States, it is much closer to becoming the law of the land in California,
1: yeah, it, se- it seems like we're going to have like a West Coast regime of network neutrality, where Washington, Oregon, and California will sort of have um, laws that 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 interlock to create a a, a kind of open internet. Right, in, with, with, with the big in protection year of 2018, 2019. With
0: the big protection being that it would that these laws, um, by and large, prevent an internet service provider from throttling or blocking the content you get uh, based upon who's providing it, right? And then also puts restrictions on the so-called internet fast lanes, the idea that one company would pay money or have to pay money in order to serve you content with an advantage over another company or another provider. Yeah, which is such a mess when when so
1: many of these companies own so much content. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So it's the idea that the, the, the internet would be a neutral highway that passes information. Everyone who has internet pays for access to it. So the people who serve information pay for their access. The more information you serve, the more you pay. And people who receive it, pay for your access. The faster your your internet and the more data you get, the more you pay. So not the idea that everyone pays yeah. nothing and that a Comcast or an AT&T can't make any money. It's just the idea that in the in-between, as these uh, data goes over the pipes, uh, nobody has a fast link.
1: Regulated
0: capitalism.
1: <laughs> they make a profit, but there are limits.
3: It's interesting living in California where there are a number of there are a number of things recently where rules and laws in California are are different from the rules and laws for the entire country. And, and this idea of having greater protections in California is coming up again and again this year. So I'm going to be interested as a Californian to see how this plays out. There's an indication that there will be legal challenges and that the FCC may be arguing that states cannot pass their own net neutrality rules. So... I will be curious to see how that plays out. Yeah,
0: yeah. the FCC claims that uh, the states cannot pass their own net neutrality rules at the same time that part of the FCC overturning the net neutrality rules is the FCC saying, well, we actually can't have domain over this. So it's sort of like, well, we can't have domain over it, but neither can you. Which is a a kind of difficult uh, circle Uh to square.
1: Nothing Uh, new for the Federal Communications Commission, (laughs) though, if you've
0: been following these airwaves, listening
1: to Radio Survivor, and we've covered um, those sorts of contradictions on
0: numerous episodes
1: of this program.
0: Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, now that uh, we've got a kind of a false slate, we've got some live episodes that we're going to be recording here that we're pretty excited about happening here in the northwestern United States. Eric, Jennifer, and I will all be uh, live recording episodes of Radio Survivor. And uh, the first one comes up on October 6th as part of the Grassroots Radio Conference. This is a mostly annual gathering. It's a very very grassroots gathering of people involved in community radio, low power FM, uh, college radio, internet radio, all sorts of grassroots radio. They come together to to share skills, to discuss important ideas, to build community, to build this stuff. community around this stuff, and so. The 2018 edition is being hosted by community radio station KBOO in Portland. It'll be happening at the at Portland State University October 5th through 7th. And as part of that, we'll be presenting a live community a live radio survivor on October 6th at 6:30 p.m uh, where we're going to tackle the topic of what is community radio going to look like in five years. And, and on the one hand, I think that seems like a long time away on the other hand it seems comically short. But with all the changes we've seen, the the, the explosion of low power FM stations, uh, changes in in internet regulation, uh, as well as you know maybe changes to funding models because with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, yeah. there's a lot of things that that can affect the, our ability to make and create great radio. The massively like recent availability
1: of instantaneous streaming devices in the palms of many many, streaming many people's facebook hands facebook
0: or instagram yeah, exactly five, 5
1: years ago uh right. if i'm not mistaken none of that was really uh, available the i mean if i know yeah, for it really a fact yeah it really wasn't practical <laughs> yeah. not not to the average person I no don't, i don't even know if the business of twitch uh, existed at that time uh, you know periscope how old is periscope yeah, it's not 5 years old yeah 5 years short amount of time 5 years well Ethically even the long.
3: changes yeah the changes in the past five years that have affected community radio are huge, and uh social media has changed considerably in five years uh, with you know different media options um, and audio has changed considerably if you think about smart speakers and and how we access audio in our home so yeah. so yeah, five years
0: digital becomes more predominant internet becomes more predominant will Will the young people, will the, will the teenagers of uh, 2023 even know what a radio is? My, Our kids will. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jennifer, Jennifer and I have,
0: uh, have, have, have years. Will, will, will the tweens of 2023. <laughs> so those are some of the things we want to talk about. And, and in part, um, we chose this topic because much of Grassroots Radio Conference, and, it, and this is important, is focused on, on problems of the now. How do yeah. we build stations? How do we support our local communities? Sometimes it's technical, sometimes it's stuff on legal stuff. And there isn't really that time to think about even uh, the very near future. And I, and we thought that that was something that that we can contribute. So if you're going to the grassroots Trio Conference, and if you are involved in a community radio station or really, really uh, excited about community radio it's something you really ought to consider um, so if you're there grassroots trio conference you can come and, and participate we'll take audience questions you can see us live uh, there at the grassroots radio conference at portland state university october 6th at six thirty p.m. but the whole conference goes on from the 5th to the 7th and um, it looks it looks really great and we'll probably um, talk more about what's coming up the grassroots trio conference uh, pretty soon i know that the fully fleshed out schedule is soon to hit the website at grassrootsradioconference.org yeah it should be an opportunity for radio survivor to to to,
1: to plug into a lot more uh, voices from around the country too we were lucky enough to happen to live in the city in which this conference is uh, bringing people in to be here and so it'll give us an opportunity to uh, to bring those voices to you in the coming weeks
0: and jennifer you're going to bring us to another conference uh later that month
3: Yes, a little duo of Pacific Northwest jaunts for us. Later that month, we're going to be at the College Broadcasters Inc. conference. It's their National Student Electronic Media Conference being held in Seattle. And Radio Survivor will be doing a similar live show where we're talking about the state of college radio. And that's happening on Thursday, October 25th at 2.30. And we'll have more about that in, in the weeks to come, but it'll be a panel of folks representing different perspectives in college radio. And the plan, I think, is to do a live recording and then take some audience questions as well. So I'm hoping that'll be an interesting chance to to talk about college radio in a, in a broader way. Uh, the conference will have a lot of very hands-on practical sessions on very specific topics. So I think this will be a nice chance to talk about the broader implications of college radio on the media landscape.
0: And Jennifer, the College Broadcasters Incorporated conferences is something you've, you've attended many times, correct?
3: Yeah, I've been to, I've been a regular. Um, they have national conferences that have taken place all over the country. And it's Uh, Not only college radio participants, but student media participants in general attend the conference. So you might have some folks who participate in high school radio or who work at a college television station or online electronic media outlet. So that's why they like to use the term electronic media, because it's all encompassing of of a variety of forms of media that, that students are using in high school and college.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to go. It Will be my first time. I think Eric, it'll be your first time to go to College Broadcasters Inc. And I've, I've only... never
1: been to the Grassroots Radio Conference. Yeah, so it'll be and your i I've, first... oh. this... I've been a part of that world for far too long to yeah. have not to have not attended one of these. So it's,
0: it's exciting times. So it'll be an opportunity, wow, and that's I hope. Great. It'll be an opportunity in both cases for us to meet listeners and readers of Radio Survivor. Uh, we'll just be out there. We So come up to us and say hello. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be there and you'd like to say hello, drop us a line. You can email us at podcast at radiosurvivor.com.
1: I should mention that I'll also be a part of a panel discussion happening uh, on, on Sunday after uh, the, our, our live Radio Survivor, which is taking place on October sixth. On October seventh, I'll be part of a panel uh, titled "Philosophies of Editing," which I'm excited oh. about because uh, it's that's not a, a, and that's at the
0: Grassroots Radio Conference that's as at well. The Grassroots yeah. Radio Conference, and um, and, I, and you're on the panel with Frida Worden, who who is in in my view a rock star because she is the person who I think has has been the uh, one of the, the biggest drivers behind women's independent news gathering service wings. wings we really need to catch up with frida um she started wings as a weekly radio series distributed to community radio stations in 1986 and it's been in weekly syndication for more than 27 years wow. uh, so an, an amazing force and, and 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 again if we think back even in 1986 There wasn't a lot of room in mainstream media, mainstream radio in particular, for weekly radio program that really focused and featured women. I mean, this is just an example of the great stuff. The great stuff that's happening at a grassroots radio conference.
3: And uh, since Eric mentioned, you know, he's on another panel at the grassroots radio conference, I want to mention that at the CBI conference, I will be leading a panel about tips for preserving college radio station history. So that is happening on Friday, October 26th, at the CBI conference in Seattle. And obviously that's something that we talk about. We've talked about that on a number of Radio Survivor episodes. And um, I've put together similar panels at conferences in the past with a different, each time it's been a different group of folks talking about best practices and things they've done to, to work on these preservation and archiving projects. So it'll, it'll be folks from Rice University and University of Washington talking about different things that they've done and, and offering practical tips for other, other people who work in college radio. And, and every time I do a panel like this, I'm hoping that we're inspiring more people to take on these projects and, and demystifying demystifying the work so that it isn't so daunting.
0: Well, I won't miss it. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm
1: glad today on radio survivor that we've um, happened to have this coincidence of all these. Well, I mean, this is fall. This is what happens, but the idea that we're going to a grassroots radio conference where we're going to be focusing on community radio. And then later in the month, we're going to this college radio broadcasters conference and I think it's a good opportunity here on Radio Survivor to sort of maybe unpack this relationship, this strange relationship that Radio Survivor has always—we um, have trouble. I, uh, I see Paul's face right now is sort of expressing that trouble. Why does Radio Survivor love college radio and community radio? And why are they—I mean, we definitely know that they're two different things, but we also definitely know that they share so much— um, I think Jennifer, you used a word about five minutes ago on the program. You said the word participatory. And I think that uh I think that might, you know, better than community, the word participatory might help describe what this radio is and why why community radio and why college radio, which are really two different entities and don't have conferences together, um, why they sort of belong under the same tent.
3: Well and and some station you know in in Canada you have campus community radio stations so in some places the the connection is made more clear um and and there are radio stations in the United States that are on college campuses that have have a huge number of non-student volunteers right. They're
1: community radio so, stations essentially
3: so there there's quite the variety and um and and I wish there was more intermingling at conferences I think I think that's been a struggle. At uh, When I went to the grassroots radio conference a few years ago, I invited some people from college radio stations and, and I was happy that some of them came and they had a great time and learned a lot. Um, but I, I think it can be a challenge at some conferences that are community radio conferences for college radio folks to understand how they fit in right. um, and that they're welcome there. And 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 similarly you're probably not likely to see that many community radio folks at a college radio conference. So so do we need to bridge some sort of divide or is it fine to have uh you know, separate events? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> but I mean, we here on Radio
1: Survivor are bridging that divide, like it or not. So I think it's interesting that that we try to
0: Well what's untie interesting the to me, knot. right, is to me there's an institutionality to it all to I think I'm just making up that word, Um, right? And the thing about college radio is that there is this institution in the background, a school, a college or a university or a high school. And that, I think, really shapes and frames people's expectations for how it will work and, and what they'll do there. And even if it's very loose in its programming, even if it's very uh, experimental, um, that institutional obligation I think always shapes how people behave in and around it, and that's also if you look at then you know, like college broadcasters incorporated. It's a big organization. It's an institution in and of itself that is there to support college broadcasters, college you know college students. Uh, doing good electronic media work as well as the, the folks in those institutions that help them do it, you know, advisors and, and teachers and other people like that. And, right, and that creates its own little world and a lot of assumptions there. So even if, if there's sort of that crossover where at many college stations there's community volunteers, you know, they're thinking of themselves in that way. And in community radio, you have organizations like the the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, which is an incredibly open organization that welcomes many comers. But possibly you know, college radio stations. Exactly. But
3: Yeah, definitely. There are college radio stations who are quite active in NFCB for sure.
0: It's all a little bit more grassroots, right? And yeah. and the individual organizations themselves are radio organizations, by and large, yeah. right? That a community radio station, most of the time, is owned by a non that was created in order for there to be a community radio station. And now that's changed a little bit in the low-power FM era, so in the era from 2001 forward, um, with a lot of changes since 2013. The largest growth of radio yeah, ever. Yeah, in the <laughs> United States. Um, where... The You know, you have local community groups that were pre-existing for perhaps other reasons that are now having radio stations. And then you have, uh, in some cases, a lot of uh, public access television stations, uh, so-called PEG stations, that now are owning low-power FM Mm -hmm. stations. And I think that that's changed some of that institutionality, too, because uh, a group that we've participated with here at Radio Survivors, the Association for Community Media, which serves... Television channels principally. Yeah. But with the growth of low power FM and public access TV channels having radio stations, we're starting to see this crossover and collaboration sure. and between in- community radio and public access television where really historically you know the NFCB and the and the Association of Community Brock, of Community Media, they were friendly. But they were really separate organizations. There wasn't a lot of crossover. And And I think, you know, I hope that we at Radio Survivor kind of are sitting there at the crossroads.
1: And you just made a, a, I just want to tell listeners that you didn't just, uh, Paul Riesbendel, as you described sitting at the crossroads, you made a circular motion with your finger as as in we're actually also possibly stirring the pot a little bit to sort of blend
0: these worlds. And and that's why I want to make a little bit of a pitch for that grassroots radio conference in, in so doing, because... It's not institutional. There is no uh, Grassroots Radio Conference organization. (laughs)
1: There's no executive director of the Grassroots Radio Conference who's been working on this all year and has a staff of uh, six people helping them.
0: It's very much reflective of so many community stations where you're lucky if there's one or two paid people and and the vast majority of the labor and, and the effort is volunteer. Um, And the way the grassroots radio conference functions is that uh, a host station comes forward kind of every year and says, we'll take on the the lion's share of the organizing. And I mean, there there's, and there is a group of people who have come together to kind of help this process go through. They come together and collaborate from around the country to, to make sure that that's happening a little bit easier. But again, there's no overarching LLC or 501 C three or other sort of corporation. And, and, and for that notion, then it's, it's much more porous potentially meaning, uh, you self-elect to go to the grassroots radio conference. Right. You don't have to uh, say that you have a, an affiliation. You just have to care, um, and then and then show up. Uh, so even a if lot you've never like set foot in the community,
1: it's a lot like who becomes a community radio right, right. producer. It's the the person that uh, that both has the
0: privilege and the wherewithal to to say that they are a community radio producer. They just do it. But as we know now, I think the open door in and of itself is not sufficient. Yeah. Simply saying the door is open and anyone can come doesn't always mean that uh, that lots of college students or college broadcasters will walk through the think, door at the I GRC. I think we're starting
1: to get into some of the content of the panel that we're going to be Perhaps. I about. don't know.
0: I don't know. Well, but, that's, right. you know, that's
1: something that I was actually yeah. – that I had bookmarked in my own mind for the conversation community radio in the next five years is that I definitely wanted to – talk about who, who is invited to make community radio yeah. in the next five years and how do we extend that invitation to those people. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's Which is an un... It's not, it's not an easy... There are no easy answers um, how to get uh, people who need a, a living wage to make radio that living
0: wage. Or to make any sort of uh, grassroots community media because I, at least one thing I hope we'll also be talking about is how... Uh, you know, we have to think more than about what just comes out of a uh, out of an FM transmitter, right? Right. Uh, you know, and that that in that it it's all community media. That's why I continually like to use that term. And even yeah. though we're we're very radio focused here at Radio Survivor, we can't deny it. But you know, at this you know we are talking about community media. I think in so many ways. Sure.
3: Well, and I was just um, maybe this will be up soon, but I was just creating a new home for all of my radio station tours and and thinking about ways to categorize them and in that list i think of community radio as stations there could be stations that are streaming stations that i consider to be community radio stations right you know in in addition to low power fm full power fm and and probably things i haven't even conceived of technologically yet um so yeah they're it's definitely not just licensed stations,
1: and it's. I guess what's what's so fun about this conversation is it's. We're not talking about. It doesn't have to be television. It doesn't have to be a website. It doesn't have to be streaming on the terrestrial radio or the internet. So much as it is a group of people who are participating together, creating something, um, on an ongoing basis. You know, it's 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 a home for a, for a number of people. To make things together, and that's—I think—that's more where Radio Survivor also is sort of um, starting to to focus its energy. In general, we love radio, but um, if if a thousand people in a city somewhere are engaged in a in a collective art project, I think we would like to talk about that as well, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I think so. And that is Eric Klein, and I'm Paul Reismanel, and joining us from San Francisco is Jennifer Waits. We are three-quarters of radiosurvivor.com. Matthew Lassar is another of our co-founders, and he often joins us here on the radio show, which you can hear at our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. You can also hear on well over a dozen community radio stations and college stations around the United States. And internet
1: stations. And
0: Internet stations and Part 15 unlicensed AM radio stations. And if you
1: want to know more about part fifteen unlicensed radio stations, just, check out previous episodes. Yeah, go to of go of to radio
0: radio. <laughs> com and just search. We've got a search box, search Part P A R T fifteen, and you will you will learn a lot about that. But you know, we are here, we used to say at the top of the show, the sound of strong communities. I love that. And when we came up, and that, that was a listener. That was that a listener con- contribution. But then, um, at my behest, uh, I'll admit we 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 kind of we stopped using it because I, I I feel like community radio is is great, but almost too limiting because we also were sort of interested in all sorts of audio out there. Yeah, and and what and what there is, and and we go down often. We'll spend weeks concentrating on community radio but then we'll get into college radio and then we'll just get into other interesting things and um i don't know i just say that as a way of of completely not explaining what it is we're doing here
1: (laughs) well so i mean on, on the one hand like what's happened is that the word community um when it's linked to the word radio i think has um might uh, un, has just been bleached over time of that significance of what a, and it's also uh probably just by necessity of all these stations existing been um argued about to death what does community radio mean usually means who get who's invited and how much did they get paid compared to me uh so the word itself is is maybe so loaded down that it that it's no longer uh, useful to use to describe the kind of uh, projects that we care about at Radio Survivor.
3: And and sometimes it's not even, you know, I think about some of the niche things I write about. Sometimes it's not even about a community necessarily. You know, radio art, you know, they're implied communities, but it's not about community radio per se. It's not about, a you know. So I like to tackle stories sometimes that are just about the idea of radio or sound and how that intersects with something. And it could be, you know, popular culture, um, you know, how is radio depicted on a teen television show? Um, And so that doesn't necessarily fit with that tagline per se.
1: And then I guess there's also shows that we've celebrated, you know, individual creators here on Radio Survivor that um, uh, it's – it's like almost an accident that they ended up at community radio stations in the first place. It was like the only place they could go to make their art, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they would self-identify as community radio producers. Well,
0: yeah, or here, I think that's a great point that you, that both of you make. And then going into like, the, you know, here we are in the twenty teens. You know, we we have talked to you know people who are creating. Shows strictly for internet distribution, whether yeah. through podcasting or through a platform like miss Cloud, and but we think is in that spirit of of sharing and and building you know communities of interest, if you will. The internet is the ultimate community radio station, possibly. But you know it, it's fragmented and and it's it's hard to find or sometimes easy to find, and that's why you know. Uh, when describing this, where we're going or what it seems to be this emerging idea, you know, when I've talked with both of you, I've used this idea that, you know, we're the, the Atlas Obscura of radio, right? Atlas Obscura is this Someone organization that helps you find, uh, you know, interesting place, tourists, you know, to go as a tourist or, um, interesting stories behind actual historical places. Um, in some ways we're looking for that audio and radio and, um, and media that is off the beaten path or it led eventually to something enormous and uh, in the culture, like when we, when you talked with the the person behind the hip hop radio archive, mm-hmm. uh, the archives of hip hop radio shows going back to, you know, the eighties and nineties uh, as hip hop would eventually become a predominant form of popular music, but at the time was still uh, in many cases on the fringes. Yeah. The
1: only place that hip hop uh, could, could exist at that time on was the radio. on these community yeah, radio yeah. stations, or at least in Solid stations. Yeah. Right.
3: Well, and I think, yeah, radio so often can be used as this window into history and, and communities and understanding all of these different aspects of our culture. And, and I've said this probably way too many times, but, you know, I think about looking at the world through the lens of radio and and people might think of radio in such a very specific way, but I think of radio as being this huge idea that um, is a way to understand so many different things going on in our world and, you know, not only learning about different subcultures and learning about history of certain types of music and, and, and learning about... Um, a community during a particular period in time. It it's just, there's just so much to it. Um, and, and, and radio is is in all these places and radio is in video games. Um, so radio is in places that some people don't even see it or can't even find it because they're not physically there.
0: Yeah. Jennifer, you had uh, brought up uh, a story that was in uh, the New York times Sunday magazine, I believe very recently. Um, about radio, about a particular kind of radio. And I thought this was, this was interesting. Can you tell us more about this piece?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's actually a friend of mine who I'm, I'm very excited that he's published in the New York times Sunday magazine, Nick Rubin. Uh, he wrote an ode to the humble clock radio and, you know, basically talking about how he wakes up to his clock radio every day and And so for him, it's a different audio experience every day and how that's more interesting than hearing the same alarm tone day after day after day, you know, so it's, it's a beautifully written piece, uh, you know, a love letter to not only a clock radio, but also a love letter to radio and, and, and describing radio in a way that I hadn't really thought about before, even though I think about radio, you know, incessantly. Um, I, I also wake up to the radio every day. Although, you know, his ode is to more of a vintage clock radio. Um, but I have a an internet radio that I use as my clock radio. So, I'm I'm waking up to the sounds of radio every day. Do listeners,
1: do young listeners need to be reminded or told that that kind of clock radio that was being written about in this article that you that you've pulled out for us, Jennifer, was it's more ubiquitous than a toaster. At at a certain point in history, everybody. I mean, I know that every member of my family in the '80s ha- would have a clock radio by their bedside table. They they used to have um, before digital numbers. They would have little flipping uh, black and white. The numbers were actually on like cards that would flip. In, you know. Like
0: in a train station.
1: Yeah, and and these oh, yeah. radios were um, of moderate to terrible quality with the speakers, and yet, yeah, they're they're on your bedside table next to your reading lamp. They were they're right. a part of yeah. everybody's uh, night and everybody's morning in a very intimate way, like a phone.
3: And that's, yeah, that's what I, you know, when I was a kid, I fell asleep to the radio every night. That's where I would listen to things like the shadow, you know, I, I heard my first radio dramas on my clock radio in my room at night, um, and then would wake up in the morning to people like Doctor Don Rose in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, you know. And but the past number of decades, I I wake up to college radio and often to voices of people that I know, which can be sort of interesting when you're sleeping to hear familiar (laughs) voices. So often people I know will end up in my dreams because I'm hearing, you know, the voice of a DJ who I'm friends with makes their way into my dream state. um, And also hearing like odd, strange sounds. Um, But yeah, Nick Rubin talks about that, how, you know, he can wake up to um, he says, so on any any given morning, a clock radio may give you any variety of human voices, or Beethoven's Sixth, or Baba O'Reilly. Sometimes you wake up to a marvelous serendipity, like a plane song on the morning of a flight. Um, so I, I like this kind of romanticized depiction of radio from his experience of listening to his clock radio every day, and and I'm really glad that you know a huge number of people are going to see this article in the New York Times. Sunday Magazine. Going to
0: bring clock radios back.
3: Well, I I don't
0: I don't think that they've gone away. You know, I, I they still exist. I think people still have them. Yeah. If you, I mean, you could probably go to a department store right now. I've stayed in a lot of hotels yeah. in the last twelve months, and nearly all of them had a clock radio, and it might have had an input for or Bluetooth for your smartphone as well, but it had a radio. They are still around. And every time I turned one on, it was tuned to a station right so it had clearly been used recently it wasn't because they're 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 usually cheap in analog the radio parts so that you know if it were left in the same place for too long, it'll drift on its own. Mm. It would no longer be tuned in. So the fact that somebody very recently, almost every time had had tuned in a station and you get you can get a, a, a sense for like who was there before. Yeah. Sometimes it's a hip hop station. Sometimes it's Christian. Sometimes it's the local NPR affiliate. Uh, very often I found um, in, in some cities, it's like a local Spanish language station. Mm. Um, you know, it gives you almost a little insight Right into into the people passing through. So uh, Paul, that hotel room. <laughs> community radio during, redefined.
3: <laughs> Paul during the grassroots radio conference that um, you and I attended in Urbana a number in of years 2012. ago, twenty twelve. I was in my motel room um, listening on my clock radio to a late night show that you were doing at <laughs> Weft
0: <laughs> at community radio W E F T. My friend Ed, who was on the show about a year ago, talking about his show called Incoming Wounded, uh, a late night improvisational soundscape show that he's been doing for 30 years or so. That was the show. Um, But that particular night, uh, we had a special gathering we called the Noise Assembly, which is something we've been doing on and off since the late 1990s. Um, uh, So, where much of Ed's sort of soundscaping is using found sound or existing records along with his own contributions through synthesizers and stuff. In this case, lots of a group of uh, about 6, 6 of us come together with musical instruments and noisemakers and all sorts of things to uh more somewhat organically create these soundscapes often narrated through um, Dreamy and absurd uh, stream of consciousness uh, uh, rants and dialogues. Uh, I think that's what you heard. Is that about right?
3: It is. Well, and, you know, way more interesting to pull it up on an actual radio <laughs> right. than listen online. So, um, through the tiny you know. little
0: speaker, right? So, you know, in, in yeah. all of its low fidelity.
3: And we all, you know, we've talked about that when we travel that, that all of us enjoy, you know, listening to a terrestrial radio and, you know, and sometimes, you know, you, you're listening to stations that aren't on the terrestrial dial, but when, when there's that opportunity that you're in a town with interesting stations or, you know, you just want to check out what a town sounds like over the radio. um, It's a, it's a great benefit to have Mm -hmm. a clock radio in your hotel or motel room.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Because you really don't know what you're going to find. And there are times when, when you are truly surprised at that, a low wattage college radio station just comes in in that you know, stealing concrete building that is, you know, seemingly impenetrable to all but the the biggest flamethrower stations,
3: so Nick Rubin also sort of mentions this quality of radio where you might actually be listening to the same thing simultaneously as other people and and that's something that you know, increasingly you wonder how much that's happening when you're driving in your car, for example. Like, are are the people in the next car over listening to the same station? Um, and and when they are, there's something very magical about that, that you're sharing the same thing at the same time. So that that's another part of his piece, is kind of exploring this idea of radio, live radio experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and when it comes to broadcast, I mean, radio is still primarily a live experience. Only a tiny bit of it is really available on demand still, you know, where it's archived, where you can go back and re-listen to it. Um, so much is still very ephemeral. And and that's I think that's a wonderful aspect. To me, it's a freeing aspect often in my times of creating community radio. But of course, limiting, you know, uh, as we'll talk about next week uh about radio archives again and we've talked about many times before it also means that a lot of what is in many cases history or culturally significant programming is also lost to that ether right yeah
1: i i think it's really interesting how uh the day after a radio program airs it's it's only so interesting but 10 years Hmm. and then 20 years and then 50 years after it airs uh, that you want to hear. I mean, that experience of getting to hear how the radio sounded, for instance, 50 years ago in 1968, it's extremely, it's extremely telling about um,
0: what it, what it felt like to live through that time. Can I make a confession?
3: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: uh, recently I've spent a, a fair amount of time with my brother uh-huh. Who uh, teaches history at the New Jersey Institute of Technology? He has a PhD in American Studies, and he's good at finding all sorts of old stuff on YouTube. And he hit upon somebody who has an account who has been ar- who's been uploading dozens upon dozens of archives of Casey Kasem's American Top Forty. Wow. And so uh, Casey Kasem has passed a number of years ago. And for people who may not know what it was, it was a weekly show counting down the top 40 singles in the nation. Wildly popular, heard around the nation, in every market. Heard
1: around the world. If you listened to the radio in the blobbity bloops, in the the 80s and the 70s.
0: 60s, 70s, I guess 70s, 80s, into the 90s, and even early 2000s, probably on a Saturday. Yeah. uh, Some station would be airing this pop radio countdown and this person has has uploaded these yeah and and i i think they must have worked at a radio station because the quality is too good Mm. it's not doesn't sound like they recorded it off the air speaking of public domain and fair use so what this person did was cut out all the songs Because that's because that's, that's what where we get, get flagged, flagged yeah. by YouTube. So what you get, what, the way uh, this person's cut it is, you get the intros. Often you get the national commercials, which are included Ooh. in the syndicated broadcast, and then you know the first uh, fifteen seconds of the song and the last fifteen seconds of the song, sure. so you can hear the context. A little,
1: a little bit of fair use there.
0: And my brother and I sat down together and listened to so many of I, these together. I would re- I'd want to rebuild the whole show, going back to like 1986. Take, listening take to this, the 15. I bet you the
1: person who did that editing had that in mind that somebody somewhere would reconstruct, reconstruct it. Yeah, the, the programs mm-hmm. with the missing material. But
0: but I think to your point of like if if someone said, well, this is the Casey Kasem countdown from last week. Eh, who cares, right? Well, I'm living in this that week's. Life. Yeah, yeah, this week's is more important because I want to see what's moved on the charts back when people, I think, cared about such things. But to go back and listen to uh, when you know, were in eighth grade, when you were in eighth grade or when you were a senior in high school, and then hearing, you know, the, at least the pieces of songs you're like, what that song was popular? I don't. And, of course, he did the long-distance dedications where people would write in, usually a really sad, sad story, and they wanted to send a song to somebody, uh, or the anecdotes that he tells about um, <laughs> about the, the bands that are often uh, really obscure and sometimes barely related um, – you know and then, of course to hear the old radio commercials um is amazing cool. we'll put a, we'll put a link in the show notes but it it just i, I also remember listening to sort of Casey, Casey's countdown on a clock radio in my bedroom you know oh, yeah. especially as a younger child uh excited to hear you know the the song i really like move up in the charts or what's it going down in the charts you know full of anticipation
3: yeah i mean there's so much nostalgia and 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 especially you know now people are recording their lives and their pop culture on a, you know, constantly. So people may be revisiting, uh, you know, a TV show from last night or a radio show from last week. It's easier to do that. But, you know, for us old timers, you know, we weren't really revisiting this stuff from our youth during our youth. Well, and and will it be there?
0: Will today's stuff, will 2018 stuff be there in some accessible and findable form in 20 years? I think it's, worth questioning whether
3: that will actually be true
1: well yeah
0: i've i mean this
1: is well yeah i mean there's
3: this with digital material um you know many of us have a harder time finding things from 10 years ago than from finding things from 40 years ago because if i
1: if i had had the foresight uh back when twitter was fresh i would like to just i would like a videotape of what my twitter feed looked like in in two thousand and nine,
0: VHS. You just point a camcorder
1: yeah, at it because because <laughs> you can't get that back. You can't get right. the feedback. So yes, Facebook will say this was your memory mm-hmm. from ten years ago, but it will not say this
0: is what your feed looked like. That's right. And yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, I it's love the difference it. between having recorded sort of uh, a night of primetime programming on a VHS cassette yeah. versus being able to go back and watch a DVD of All in the Family or Friends. Yeah. It's
3: exactly uh, it's different. Yeah. It's
0: yeah. To
1: see I those. I think we've talked
3: about that before. Yeah. You lose the context and, and things change even when it's made into a commercially sold DVD, the music might be different because of copyright. So I, yeah. And, and we've had these conversations recently about how our VHS tapes are going to deteriorate. So I need to track down all these things mm-hmm. I like taped off TV and save them. Yeah. I started. I
1: started
0: yeah it's emotionally heavy labor <laughs> let me tell you it's well, not easy we're we're here to help at radio survivor I'm Paul Riesbindell with me is Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits joins from San Francisco and uh I'm gonna I'm gonna crawl us out of one rabbit hole and maybe throw us into another one really briefly Around podcasting. Okay. Which is, you know, effectively what radio on demand is these days, right? It, especially if you listen to public radio. Uh, there's a lot, you know, syndicated programs. If you missed uh This American Life, you can catch the podcast. Obviously, our show is a radio show and a podcast. Um you know, <laughs> and but there's been some talk. There's some this weird talk in the in the radio industry uh recently about uh this idea that's been around in podcasting for a while but it seems now the radio folks have well, have have, have is come it, is it because
1: people who make radio big big broadcasters uh jumped onto the podcasting bandwagon recently like it's been a you know yes public radio has always been available as a podcast but it hasn't um am i wrong to say that that people in the big professional uh broadcast
0: yeah. I Heart I heart media, I Heart radio, cumulus, yes, they're a little late to the podcast. They're trying
1: party. their hand at this podcast. Yeah. Thing.
0: So there, there's been some talk about this idea of pod fading. And pod fading is basically podcasts that start and go away, right. Um, and recently uh, at the podcast movement conference, uh, Todd Cochran, who runs Blueberry, uh, a podcast host. He likes to share all these interesting stats cuz he's been doing it a long time and ha- and can go dig into, you know, the the logs and uh noted that, you know, right now he sees about 540,000 podcast titles. Wow. And um that they're and that it seems to go up by about 2,000 every week. Wow. But if we look at like just this year, April, May and June, only about twenty percent of those five hundred forty thousand podcasts put out a fresh episode. So the idea is that there's sure there's all these like entries, these feeds out there, but only so many of them are active. And even if we keep adding to it, a lot don't go away. And the crux of the radio folks huh. who, who are observing this is, is it, it's hard to figure out, but they're sort of saying you see, you know, I mean, podcasting, maybe it's not maybe it's not as big as you think it is. And it's hot, but, you know, people don't stick with it. Um, Which is sort of like the implication of like, you see there, you, you young whippersnappers and upstarts with your podcasting. Um, You know, maybe, maybe radio is real, maybe broadcast radio is only where it's at.
1: Just because they keep building all these gyms In the city I live in doesn't mean everyone's going to work out these days. (laughs) People are not getting healthier. Yeah,
0: I mean, and I'd say, you know, go back and look at how many pilot programs get made every TV season that don't ever get picked up, right? That don't ever actually make it on the air. And then compare how many shows, you know, aired a a few episodes of a season before getting canceled. So, So you're saying there's a prominent argument right now
1: in the sort of mainstream radio circles circles uh that podcasts are a flash in the pan not a flash in the pan
0: i think i don't think that's the argument i think the argument is a bit more like uh is that you know it's it's still niche you know and and that uh it you know and 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 a very unobvious i think uh kind of observation is that uh doing a podcast is still hard meaning just because it's easy to start podcasting doesn't mean that like it's easy to keep podcasting.
1: Yeah, well we've talked about that here on Radio Survivor. It takes effort. For, you know, 160 episodes or so, <laughs> every every few episodes, we we especially early on, we went into that where uh don't don't begin podcasting and imagine that it will be easy or that the listeners will um
0: that all of a sudden you'll have 50,000, yeah. 100,000, or 50 million listeners. It, it's just like radio. You'll just,
1: you'll have, you'll...
0: you'll And it's, the, and in some ways, it's not just like radio. Yeah. Because if you have a radio station, even an LPFM, LP a 100-watt station, and you turn it on, somebody will hear you. It is very plausible. You can create a podcast. Especially if and, you leave it
1: on for more than one day. Exactly. Right? If you don't turn the radio station on
0: from inside the station <laughs> yeah, right. and then shut
1: it off after a week, if you right. stay on the air for a year... You'll but grow. you
0: grow. You can make a podcast that maybe no one will hear, be unless you tell them about it. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the the sort of the, as we've talked often, the, the defining it's an uh, MP3 in the dark line between well, a podcast and, and a radio show. So,
3: and there's so much diversity to podcasting, and and the the cost to create your first podcast can be really low compared to creating a television pilot, exactly, or you know launching a radio station. So I don't even think everybody who and there are a lot of people probably dipping their toes in and adding, you know, something podcast-like on their website and, and without even necessarily the intention of it becoming anything beyond that. And But then, of course, you also have um, people who are spending a lot of money on their podcast and really want to have a big audience. So it's almost difficult for me to even think about, you know – this whole idea and look at all these different types of podcasts as the same thing. Yeah. You know, cuz there's so much the the intention is so different. Um and I don't know if this fits with this topic at all right now, but the FCC actually just started a podcast and huh. and and they described they said, well, and I think it's the introductory episode is just a like a 5-minute intro episode. Where they say that for the FCC, doing something in the first 10 years of its existence is early adoption. <laughs> so they even poke fun, like, you know, like for the FCC, this is actually, we're really early. Kind first of 13 making, years. Making our first <laughs> podcast. <laughs> what so, what's the
1: FCC podcast like?
3: You know, demystifying the FCC, which is an interesting idea. So, From whose point of view? <laughs> Isn't that FCC? always the cynical response? Yeah. But I share that.
0: <laughs> right. I share that cynical response it, because it makes you wonder: Is this, it, is this actually opening the doors? Is this is this in the spirit of transparency, or is it propaganda? <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it'll be fun to listen to
3: yeah give, give no, us something to talk
0: about on radio survivor
3: yeah no i was i mean I was really fascinated to see the announcement about the launch of the podcast and um and then listening to the 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 five minute introductory episode and then the full twenty two minute episode that they did following that um you know it was actually a really interesting listen and um, there was some lightheartedness, um, you know, because on the surface it sounds like, oh, like I'm listening to the FCC podcast. That sounds like a really fun time. <laughs> um, that was sarcasm but, in case you're reading
1: a transcript <laughs> of Jennifer's words.
3: Um, but, yeah, they had actually a really great episode about um, going to Puerto Rico and top, talking about um, some of the work that was being done following all of – the horrible devastation, you know, from the hurricanes and how you tackle, um, you know, helping out with the communications Mm -hmm. infrastructure. So, you know, it's very interesting. And I think, you know, on the surface, they're talking about um, the the name of the whole podcast is more than seven dirty words. (laughs) So, you know, the idea is the FCC is more than just... Seven dirty words, and and for a lot of radio stations, that is what you think of. So
0: right that they're that they're gonna that they're enforcing the
3: non-use well, of those I'll, seven dirty. I'll words. just lay
1: my cards on the table. My concern was that the FCC podcast was another attempt by the current chairman Ajit Pai to take to the internet's to uh, use it as his bully pulpit to make fun of his opponents and enemies, which is how we've seen. You know, we've seen. Uh, I don't know if it was official FCC materials, but there were there were web videos anti net neutrality web videos that were pretty gross uh and dumb so that was my big concern but if if the wonks at the fcc are getting into creating content that's that's really exciting what the fcc writes on their website is that The FCC is more than seven dirty words. It's over 1,400 employees, 80 years of history, and countless untold stories and unsung heroes. The official FCC podcast will bring you those stories, featuring interviews with FCC staff and others in the communications space. So if they stay true to that, uh, count me as a listener. That's pretty exciting. Well, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean... I will be tuning in and, and checking it out and and of course it could be used, you know, simply as a publicity PR vehicle and and highlighting all of the good news and the good stories. But um you know, I will remain open-minded at this juncture and, and I enjoyed yeah. what I heard so far.
0: Very good. We'll have uh, links to that in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And I think I think we're wrapping up here. So let us know, what do you think about clock radios? What do you think about the FCC podcast and pod fading? Um, and uh, what do you think about net neutrality in California? Or any topic. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You can communicate with us there as well. And we are a... Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty much a volunteer run organization here. Uh, you can help us continue to produce this show and produce our website at radio com. Look to radio survivor.com slash support to learn more about that. Jennifer waits. Thanks for joining us for another fun hour.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. I want to tell everyone to tune in next week to our, uh, our episode about this amazing archive from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, uh, decades in the making, all these radio programs that uh, um, that our guest next week will tell us about, the preservation of that, and we'll get to hear the sounds of that. Uh, I'm really excited to share that with the listeners. So tune in next week.
0: Well, thank you, Eric Klein. I'm Paul rees Mandel and thank you for spending another hour with us.